Hey everyone, it's Jamie. Welcome to another episode of Murderish. A lady named Amanda reached out to me recently asking if I would be interested in covering her brother's story on the show. Amanda is seeking justice in the death of her brother, Donald Edward Vicky Jr., known as DJ by his loved ones. DJ's story has been told by other podcasts as Amanda is trying to get as much attention as possible on her brother's case. Amanda feels very strongly that justice has not been served and she wants to change that. You will learn after this episode just how tenacious Amanda has been in seeking justice for DJ. She is a grieving sister who has somehow managed to pull together tremendous strength in a pursuit to get her brother's death ruled a homicide and put his killer behind bars. My friend Lisa agreed to partner with me on this story. Lisa is the co-host of Eye for an Eye podcast. I'm very thankful to Lisa for all of her help pulling the story together. We hope that by telling DJ's story, our efforts will support Amanda's pursuit of justice for DJ. I should mention that some of the names of witnesses involved in this case have been withheld for various reasons. Before we get into the show, I want to take a minute to thank the most recent Patreon supporters. Valerie Riddell, Rebecca Armelin, Chandra Moreau of Disturbed State Podcast, and Tyler and Beck from the Minds of Madness podcast. Thank you to all of you for your support. It is much appreciated and really helps me cover the overhead costs to produce this show. If you aren't already listening to Disturbed State and Minds of Madness, please check these podcasts out. Not only are they great shows, but they're hosted by great people who have been supportive in so many ways. On the last episode of Murderish, I mentioned an announcement I was going to be making soon, and I'm ready to do that now. Recently, my good friend Morph asked if I'd like to be a co-host on his existing true crime podcast called Crime Sphere. I was more than happy to co-host the show with Morph because he's a great guy and a podcaster I admire. In addition to Crime Sphere, Morph hosts Criminology and The Murder in My Family, two really great podcasts. On Crime Sphere, we interview high-profile people in the true crime community and discuss all the latest true crime news, TV shows, documentaries, and more. It's a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes being released every other Thursday. Morph and I just released our first episode together on Crime Sphere, and that's episode 9. I hope you'll stop what you're doing, search Crime Sphere in your favorite podcast app, and hit the subscribe button. Also, follow us on Twitter at Crime Sphere, Instagram at Crime Sphere Podcast, and Facebook, where we've got a private discussion group set up. Just search Crime Sphere Discussion Group on Facebook and you'll find it. I'm excited about this new venture and I hope you'll check Morph and Me out on Crime Sphere. All right, guys, let's get into the show. This show contains content that may not be suited for everyone. Sensitive topics are discussed, and this may be a trigger for some people. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Uh, I need a, uh, amateur, uh, 862 
those problems? Uh, we got a guy shot, sir. Okay, what are you feeding stuff with? A shotgun. Okay, is he breathing? Uh, it looks like it. I don't know. I just think How old is he? So I tried to get the gun. I tried to get the gun. And it went off. And he ate his mouth. And I was like, man, you know. What, is it a 12 gauge? Uh, yeah. Is it still able to talk? Huh? Is he still able to talk? No. I mean, he stuck it in his mouth. Alright, is he still breathing? Yeah, it looks like it. I'm gonna get I'm getting everybody going. How old is he? How old is he? Is 
he inside oh. the house? Is he in a car? Is he in a room? No, he's in he chair at? in the front door. He's in a chair in the front door. Yes. Alright, is he still sitting in the chair? of three calls came into Walker County 911 shortly after 1 p.m. on October 3, 2016. The caller, a man the operator mistakenly referred to as Mike, reported that a man had shot himself in the face with a 12-gauge shotgun. He said they needed an ambulance. I'm going to refer to the 911 caller as Mike, although that is not his real name. The man who apparently shot himself was Donald Edward Fickey Jr., known as DJ by family and friends. The trailer home where the 911 call was coming from was owned by a man people called Old Man. It was a known drug house with several people staying there at any given time. Sheriffs were very familiar with this residence as they had made several visits to Old Man's residence before. Mike, the 911 caller, is one of the people who had been staying at the residence. He had been sleeping in a camper which was parked on the property. DJ had also been staying at the property with his wife, Brandy. 
In the 911 calls, you can hear a woman wailing and screaming in the background. She's absolutely hysterical. She's asking, quote, when is the ambulance coming and calling out DJ's name? The distraught woman was DJ's wife, Brandy. Almost immediately after dialing 911, Mike tells the operator that he tried to grab the gun, but it, quote, went off. The 911 operator instructs Mike to secure the gun by placing it in a location away from the victim. Mike complies. The operator also instructed Mike to unload the gun. A Walker County officer arrives on scene at 862 Nickajack Road in Flintstone, Georgia, not long after the 911 calls came in. The first responder, Officer Weber, reported later that when he arrived on scene, Mike and Brandy were standing outside and Mike had a spent 12-gauge shotgun shell in his hand. Mike told Officer Weber that the 911 operator had instructed him to unload the weapon and secure it. Officer Weber asked Mike where the shotgun was, and he told him it was on a shelf inside the trailer near the victim. Upon entering the residence, Officer Weber saw DJ sitting upright on a love seat not far away from the front door. He had a massive injury to his face. The police officer spoke loudly to DJ, but he got no response. He then checks for breathing and a pulse, but he cannot find one. The officer then moved the shotgun to an outside table on the front porch and proceeded to walk through the residence and clear it for any other people. EMS arrived on scene shortly after the residence was cleared. Officer Weber informed EMS that he could not find any signs of life and let them know the location is a possible crime scene. He asked them not to disturb anything that is not necessary to help the victim. EMS advised they could not find any signs of life and then called the coroner. Another officer, Deputy Chandler, arrived on scene and Detective Ellenberg arrived not long after that. In a report written by Deputy Chandler, the second person on scene, he states that Mike told him he had come over to the residence to visit a friend. Mike told Deputy Chandler that DJ and Brandy had been arguing and that DJ was very depressed and had attempted suicide in the past month or so. Mike also said that he was in another room when he heard a gun go off inside the living room of the trailer. He told Deputy Chandler that the 911 operator instructed him to secure the gun, at which time he pulled the gun off of DJ's chest. Mike said Brandy ran outside the trailer when the gun went off, and he chased after her to try and calm her down. Officer Weber and Deputy Chandler entered the scene under the premise that this was a suicide based on the 911 calls. The suicide premise was confirmed to them by Mike's statements when they questioned him on scene that day. We know that Officer Weber told EMS that this was a potential crime scene. However, the area was never taped off. DJ's sister Amanda says that DJ was a good friend and brother, and the two of them were especially close. She described him as a comedian who was always pulling pranks on people for a good laugh. He would even do this with total strangers. Amanda also said her brother was loyal, almost to a fault, it seems. Based on what I know about this case, DJ's fierce loyalty to Brandy may have been a contributing factor in his death. The thing is, DJ couldn't quit Brandy. He told his family he'd love her until the day he died. The two of them started dating while they were fairly young, and DJ was head over heels in love with Brandy. The couple had an unplanned pregnancy in 2014, a baby boy. They got married and had twin boys just a year later. 
DJ and Brandy were not in the best situation to raise children, and they found themselves with three young boys in a very short period of time. DJ loved his sons very much, but his and Brandy's drug use would eventually lead to them losing custody of the boys. And to say that DJ and Brandy's relationship was dysfunctional would be an understatement. The two of them argued often and would take their fights to social media. Brandy would make derogatory statements about DJ on Facebook, and DJ did the same. Before DJ started dating Brandy, he was what Amanda described as an occasional drug user. Brandy, however, used drugs regularly, and DJ's drug use escalated after the two of them began dating. Their marriage became very rocky soon after they exchanged vows, and their drug use wasn't slowing down. Due to DJ and Brandy's drug use and dysfunctional relationship, all three of their boys ended up in the custody of DJ's mother, Kathy. DJ and Brandy argued incessantly, and when things got heated, Brandy made a habit of running off to the home on Nickajack Road, known as Old Man's House. Brandy would run off to Old Man's House for days or weeks at a time. Not wanting Brandy to be alone at Old Man's House, DJ would end up following her there. The two of them did this numerous times. It was a vicious cycle. Old Man's House was not a good living environment, and DJ was protective of Brandy. This is why he would follow her there and stay with her. He didn't want Brandy to be alone in that house. While at Old Man's House, DJ would often tell Brandy he wanted to start over, and he'd ask her to move back home with him. Brandy would refuse, and DJ refused to leave her there, so he'd stay. There were other people living at Old Man's House at the time, including Mike, the man who made the 911 calls the day DJ died. Brandy had developed a sexual relationship with Mike, and he was the reason she'd run to Old Man's House during fights with DJ. According to Amanda, Mike was obsessed with Brandy and had made previous statements to her that she would, quote, get a check if DJ was dead and that he would help raise her boys in DJ's absence. Mike, Brandy, and DJ were in what Amanda described as a love triangle, with Brandy going back and forth between the two men. With the three of them all staying at the same residence, you can see how this created significant tension between Mike and DJ. The tension between Mike and DJ even escalated to physical fights just a week prior to DJ's death. In one instance, Mike jumped DJ with a golf club and apparently DJ knocked one of Mike's teeth out. In another incident, Mike attacked DJ right as he got out of the shower and held a knife to his throat. It was well known that the two men did not like each other, as you would expect in a situation where two men have strong feelings for the same woman, and all three of these people are living under the same roof. In the weeks leading up to DJ's death, he reached out to several people on Facebook and told them he was being threatened and he needed to find a new place to live. When Detective Ellenberg arrived on scene the day of the incident, he was briefed by Officer Weber and Deputy Chandler. Detective Ellenberg would later note in his report that he observed a 12-gauge shotgun with a pistol grip and a short barrel laying on top of a table on the front porch of the residence. There was what appeared to be blood on the barrel and the action of the gun. The action is a part of a gun that loads, fires, and ejects a cartridge. Ellenberg also observed a spent 12-gauge shotgun shell with the gun. Walker County Coroner Dwayne Wilson arrived on scene shortly after Detective Ellenberg did. The detective and the coroner entered the residence together and immediately saw DJ, shirtless with shorts and slip-on shoes, 
sitting in an upright position on a love seat that was just inside the residence near the front door. They could clearly see a large wound on DJ's face and mouth that would be consistent with a gunshot wound. DJ had a large amount of blood on his face, chest, and stomach. Detective Ellenberg's report indicated that the gunshot wound appeared to be going from left to right, and it appeared the barrel of the gun was placed on DJ's left cheek just below the corner of his lips. He did not observe an exit wound, however, the detective noted trauma to the rear of DJ's right cheek and under his right ear, possibly where the projectiles came to rest. Detective Wilson photographed DJ, the gun, and the surrounding area where DJ was found. He did not find a suicide note. Detective Ellenberg also spoke with Mike and Brandy on scene that day. Mike told him that he arrived at Old Man's house around 12 p.m. and said he needed to take a shower and brush his teeth. Mike said Brandy was occupying the shower at the time he arrived, and DJ was in the master bedroom, which is on the western end of the trailer. Mike said DJ used his phone to text his mother, Kathy. While he was waiting for the shower, Mike said he went into a bedroom which was located at the eastern end of the trailer. At this time, Mike says he heard what sounded like a gunshot, and he proceeded to walk into the living room where he saw DJ on the love seat with blood all over him. Mike said Brandy came running from the other end of the trailer and she was hysterical. He said Brandy then ran outside crying. Mike said he called 911 and while on the phone, the operator instructed him to unload the gun and place it somewhere away from the victim. When Ellenberg asked who was at the residence during all of this, Mike said it was only him, Brandy, and DJ. Ellenberg also questioned Brandy on scene, but she was hysterical and having trouble communicating. Brandy said she was married to the victim, but she didn't say much else. When Ellenberg asked her what happened, she didn't respond. He gave Brandy a few minutes to calm down and asked her again what happened. Brandy still would not respond. Ellenberg's report indicated that a female, who identified herself by her real name, but I'll refer to her as Tina. Tina was sitting next to Brandy during questioning and consoling her. Ellenberg asked Tina what she knew about the incident, but she said she had just arrived on scene and didn't know anything. Ellenberg observed another male subject on scene who appeared to be with Tina. He noted that due to them not being witnesses, he did not get the male subject's information. Ellenberg told Brandy that he would meet with her later in the week to give her time to settle down. He took the shotgun into custody when he left. However, we would later learn it was never tested for fingerprints. While on scene that day, Coroner Wilson informed Detective Ellenberg that DJ's mother had learned about what happened and called to tell him that she was on her way to the scene. Coroner Wilson told Ellenberg that DJ's mother told him that someone killed DJ and that she had text messages from DJ saying that he was being threatened. A second detective named Walt Hensley arrived on scene around 2.30 p.m. to assist. Due to what DJ's mother told Coroner Wilson, Detective Ellenberg asked Mike if he would submit to a gunshot residue test. Mike consented, and Detective Hensley took samples from him. After samples were taken, Mike told Ellenberg that he had fired several guns the day prior and asked if that would taint the results of the gun residue test. Ellenberg told Mike that the test would not be tainted by that. Mike went on to say that he tried to get the gun away from DJ just before it went off, and he asked if that would taint the test results. 
Ellenberg told Mike that that also would not taint the test. Ellenberg's report says that it should be noted that approximately 45 minutes before the gun residue test was performed, Mike told him that he was in a bedroom when he heard a gunshot sound and then came into the living room and saw DJ with blood all over him. The detective noted Mike's inconsistent statements in his report as Mike's second statement to Ellenberg was that he tried grabbing the gun from DJ before it went off. Ellenberg then asks Mike why would DJ want to kill himself. Mike tells him that DJ had a history of suicidal thoughts and actions and that he had been trying to go live with his mother, but she would not have him due to DJ and Brandy's drug use. Mike then showed Ellenberg the text messages between DJ and his mother, which were on his cell phone. The text messages began at 12.37 p.m. and ended at 1.09 p.m. Ellenberg's report gives a summary and his opinion of the text messages that DJ exchanged with his mother. Ellenberg says in his report that basically, DJ was asking his mother if he and Brandy could live with her and she says no. DJ seems to resort to begging and tells Kathy that, quote, he is going to end up dead there and that he and Brandy needed to get out of there in order to save their lives. Ellenberg notes in his report that what he gathers from the text message conversation is that DJ and Brandy are trying to get away from the situation by going to live with Kathy, but Kathy refuses to let them. He says that DJ seems to grow more frustrated and desperate as the conversation continues. The last text message from Kathy says that she doesn't need more to take care of, and that's the last text message that was sent at 1.09 p.m. DJ didn't respond after that. The first 911 call came in three minutes later at 1.12 p.m. Ellenberg notes in his report that he has no indication that this was anything other than a suicide. He notes being made aware of DJ's prior suicidal thoughts and heavy methamphetamine use. He notes the wound on DJ's face could be consistent with a self-inflicted gunshot wound and that the gun used had a very short barrel. He further notes that given the size and style of the gun, it could be held with one hand and pointed at oneself and nobody he spoke with on scene said anything other than the incident was a suicide. Ellenberg says he met with DJ's mother, Kathy, before he cleared the scene that day. He says that Kathy told him she had threatening text messages on her phone and she did not think DJ killed himself. Kathy showed Ellenberg the text messages on her phone, and they were the same messages Mike showed Ellenberg. Ellenberg notes in his report that he did not think the text messages were threatening due to the fact that the rest of the conversation was DJ begging Kathy to let him come live with her and she told him no several times. Ellenberg told Kathy he would speak with her at a later time. While Coroner Wilson was on scene the day of the incident, Mike asked him if he could start cleaning up the mess, and Coroner Wilson gives him the go-ahead to do so. Not long after that, Mike burned the cushions of the couch on which DJ died. Some would ask why he chose to burn the cushions rather than just dispose of them. The day of the incident... DJ's mother, Kathy, was driven to the scene by her son-in-law, who was married to DJ's sister, Amanda. When DJ's mom and brother-in-law arrived on scene, Brandy immediately got into their car and asked if she could leave with them. Not knowing exactly what happened and having feelings of suspicion towards Brandy, DJ's brother-in-law refused to let Brandy leave with them that day. The decision not to allow Brandy to leave with them still haunts Amanda to this day as she wonders if the outcome in DJ's case would be different had her husband allowed Brandy to leave with them. Having no family or friends to turn to, 
Brandy was forced to stay the night at the home where she witnessed DJ's death. While on scene, Coroner Wilson made the following statement to DJ's mom about his death. He said he, quote, knew it was self-inflicted because witnesses on scene had told him so, but that he would send the body for an autopsy. After authorities and the coroner left that day, Mike, Brandy, and other people stayed the night together at Old Man's residence. Although it was not known at the time, the other people who stayed the night that evening were also witnesses. It seems clear the incident was being treated as a suicide, not a homicide. If what happened to DJ was a homicide, this overnight stay together would give all parties plenty of time to come up with a story about what happened that day. Green Chef is a USDA-certified organic company that includes everything you need to easily cook meals you'll feel good about. Choose your meals based on a paleo, vegan, vegetarian, keto, gluten-free, omnivore, or carnivore diet. All Green Chef meals come with easy step-by-step instructions and photos to guide you along. Green Chef provides a wide variety of organic ingredients and creative recipes. All ingredients come pre-measured, pre-portioned, and mostly prepped. Let Green Chef meal plan, grocery shop, and do most of the prep so you can get back to solving the JonBenet Ramsey case or binging on your favorite podcast. I'm excited about the Shrimp Pasta Primavera and the Sunflower Crusted Chicken. And Ishers, I've got a special offer just for you. Go to greenchef.us slash murderish for $50 off your first box of Green Chef. Note, the website URL is not a .com, it's .us. That's greenchef.us slash murderish for $50 off your first box of Green Chef. Brandy had not made a statement about what happened at this point. She was unresponsive when Detective Ellenberg questioned her earlier in the day. And during questions, Tina was sitting right next to Brandy. It was later determined that Tina was in fact a witness, even though initially she said she wasn't. It was also later determined that the male subject on scene with Tina was also a witness. Detectives later identified the male subject, who went by the name Fatboy, and that's how I'll refer to him. Mike, Brandy, Tina, and Fatboy, all witnesses to the incident, stayed the night together at the location of the incident. Again, if what happened to DJ was a homicide, these witnesses were given ample opportunity to come up with a story and possibly clean up the scene. Apparently, Brandy tried to use the phone that evening, but the other witnesses would not allow her to. Brandy did, however, eventually get a hold of a phone at Old Man's house and she immediately called her aunt. Brandy told her aunt a very different story than what was communicated to detectives the day prior. Brandy told her aunt that Mike shot DJ and that the other witnesses would not allow her to use the phone after police and the coroner left the scene. After Brandy told her everything, her aunt immediately called DJ's mom and told her what Brandy said. Amanda believes Brandy was too scared to tell the truth the day before because she was threatened by Mike and other witnesses to stick to their story about what happened. Amanda further believes that Detective Ellenberg should have questioned Brandy privately the day of the incident and not with Tina sitting right next to her. Tina was later determined to be a witness, and Amanda believes Brandy was afraid to say anything in front of her. Two days after the incident, Brandy made her first official statement to police. 
She said that she, DJ, and Mike spent the night in a camper at Old Man's house the night before the incident. She said she and DJ had been arguing the morning of the incident because DJ wanted tea to drink, but she gave him Kool-Aid. The detective taking Brandy's statement notes that Brandy kept jumping around in the timeline and he was having trouble following her statement. He had to help her focus and she continued on by saying that she, DJ, Mike, Fatboy, and Tina were the only people in the trailer at this time. Brandy said DJ asked Mike if he could use his cell phone and DJ began texting his mom while sitting on the love seat in the living room. She said she was inside the bathroom fixing her hair at this time. She said she came out of the bathroom and walked into the living room and saw Mike, quote, angrily come out of the bedroom and shoot DJ in the face with a shotgun. Brandy said Fatboy and Tina left the scene right after DJ was shot. She said Fatboy and Tina returned to the scene after authorities arrived. Brandy told the detective that if asked about the incident, Fatboy and Tina would lie and say this was a suicide because they are friends with Mike. When asked why she didn't tell the two detectives on scene that DJ had been murdered, Brandy said she was still in shock and too afraid to say anything at the time. Brandy told the detective that she stayed at the scene that night and left the following morning and went to her aunt's house. When asked by the detective, Brandy said the gun was approximately two to three feet away from DJ's face when he was shot. Detectives also called Mike in for further questioning, and his second statement is different than his first. This time, Mike reverts back to what he told the 911 operator that he was in the room when DJ shot himself. He tried to grab the gun, but it went off. Police were not done questioning Mike and called him in again on another date. In his third statement to police, Mike again changes his story. He now says he was in a back room, and at first he says he heard a loud bang, but takes his statement back and instead says he heard Brandy yelling. He then entered the room and saw DJ with the gun in his mouth. At this time, Mike says he can't remember if he tried to grab the gun before DJ pulled the trigger. Going off of Brandy's statement saying there were several people in the house that day, police began trying to locate the other witnesses in order to question them about what happened. They had trouble locating one of the witnesses because they only knew his nickname, Fatboy. Police eventually learned Fatboy's real name and brought him in for questioning. Fatboy's statement went like this, He, Fatboy, was in a back room with his wife, Tina, and another guy who we'll refer to as Pete. Fatboy told police that DJ and Brandy had been fighting all morning and he heard Mike tell DJ and Brandy to shut up. He then heard DJ yell something back to Mike, at which time Fatboy entered the room where Mike and DJ were and attempted to break up what he thought was going to turn into a fight. Fatboy said when he entered the room, Mike had the handle of a sawed-off shotgun in his right hand, and DJ was holding the barrel of the gun in his left hand. Brandy was yelling at Mike to stop and was pulling on his arm. Fatboy said that's when the gun went off and everyone ran away from the scene. Fatboy said he and his wife Tina left the scene because they didn't want to be involved. During his statement, Fatboy tells police that DJ committed suicide. Police get a statement from Tina and she also says DJ shot himself. At this point in the investigation, two weeks after DJ's death, police have three witnesses saying DJ shot himself, Mike, Fatboy, and Tina and one witness saying that Mike shot DJ, which was Brandy. 
They also have DJ's family in their ear telling them that DJ was in danger before he died and his death was not a suicide. Police continue their investigation and question Mike for a fourth time, and his story changes again. This time, Mike says he walked into the room to see DJ pull a gun out from the couch cushions. DJ was saying he wanted to kill himself, and Mike tried to stop him. The two of them struggled with the gun. Brandy grabbed Mike's arm, and that's when the gun went off, killing DJ. Mike's statement this time around seems to match some of the elements of Brandy's statement, with him adding the detail about Brandy grabbing his arm before the gun went off. During this visit with police, Mike was asked to take a polygraph exam. He agreed, going against the advice of his attorney. Mike failed the polygraph exam. Almost a month and a half after DJ's death, police call Fatboy back in for further questioning. In his second statement, he essentially tells police the same story, but he changes one important detail. He now tells police that Mike pulled the trigger. In his first statement, Fatboy told police that DJ shot himself. At some point during the investigation, Fatboy ended up being incarcerated on an unrelated matter. By this time, DJ's sister Amanda has taken matters into her own hands and is trying to get to the truth of what happened to her brother. Amanda and her family are frustrated with how the investigation is going and they want answers. They believe they know what happened. They believe that Mike murdered DJ and his motive was to get DJ out of the picture so he could be with Brandy and raise her children as his own. Knowing that Fatboy witnessed what happened the day DJ died, Amanda visited him while he was incarcerated. She conducted a recorded interview with Fatboy during the visit. At this time, Fatboy repeats the same story he last told police, but this time, he alludes to being fearful of Mike and confirms more details surrounding DJ's death. Mike's real name has been edited out of this audio. Hello? This is DJ's sister, Amanda. Oh, okay. I've never seen you before. I met you. Right. I've been talking to your sister, and she told me to come see you. So. Yeah. Uh, um, I know this is kind of awkward and everything. Yeah. But we need some closure. You know. I understand. And sorry, I said I wasn't gonna do this. No, that's okay. It wasn't right. What happened to my brother? Yeah, I know. DJ was a good man, and he was loved so much. And you don't know how hard it is hearing his babies ask for their daddy every day. And I just want to ask you some details. I mean, we know what happened. We, I mean, I have the investigation report and everything. I just, there's some little details that I wanted to ask you. Who wiped down the gun? You were <laughs> wiped it down? Yeah. Did he wipe it down with bleach or hand sanitizer? Uh, I don't think he wiped it down with any kind of chemical. Was his finger on the trigger when the gun went off? Yes. It was. Did DJ ever touch the gun and be honest with me, please? Yes, he had his hand up on it. His left hand. Was he, was he trying to knock it out of his hand? I don't know if block, he was... Was he trying to block it? It was so instantaneous when it went off compared to when I come through the door. I mean, it was like as soon as I come through is when the gun went off. But I couldn't see why he would be trying to make him put it up there, you know what I mean? Right. Because from what we've been told, DJ threw his arm up like he was trying to block the gun. 
maybe trying to like yeah, push no, it out of the safety. actually, he, he had his hand around the end of the barrel. I mean, I've got the investigation report where, and I've seen where you told him the majority of the truth on Valentine's Day, where you knew for a fact did come out of that room with the gun and it cocked. Yeah. Do you feel like did it on purpose? Honestly, no. I know he meant to intimidate him, but right. I really don't think he meant for the gun to go off like it did. I really don't. Why didn't bring the gun up there that morning to begin with? For intimidation. I don't think intended to shoot DJ. Like I said, I said it was he was just trying to scare him into shutting up because right. they've but, been arguing but who the all hell day. Who the hell points a loaded gun at somebody's face? I mean, is he, is he that stupid? Yeah, I mean, he really is. You know, I know you lied to begin with, and but this is some serious shit. You know, I mean, yeah. there ain't nothing that need, you need to be lying about because right. you don't want to go down with him. Well, I didn't. I was having to stay there at the time, and I was kind of, honestly, in the back of my mind, I thought he might have, you know, that if I told the 100% truth, that he might shoot me next. That he hung up on 911 two or three different times. Yeah. I didn't know that. He hung up on every time Brandy was getting loud in the background, would hang up on him. Brandy says in the 911 calls, he was shot to death, and then told 911, he said, I grabbed the gun and tried to get it away from him, and she thinks I shot him, and Brandy said, that's a lie. I mean, you can hear it clear as day in the 911 call. DJ didn't kill himself. No. And he never would have. He played that part, you know, he played that card all the time. Oh, I'll just kill myself. But it was a card. It was DJ's crutch to try to get his way, you know, to try to get, get what he wanted. But DJ would have never killed himself because he knew what it was like to grow up without a daddy. And he wasn't well, done I that told the investigators, baby. you know, when I talked to them in February that, you know, I do whatever they needed me to do. I just, I'm not saying that it, you know, it was right, but I don't, I very strongly, I don't think it was intentional, you know. But right. why, but like you said, why would you bring a loaded gun to Yeah, why would you put a loaded gun? I don't see how it could have been ruled. But they said it was, you know, suicide just because of the, the angle of the shot it shouldn't have been. Yeah. I mean, it says it was because they were, he was sent down to the crime lab as a suicide victim. The deputy coroner told me if they had sent him down there with a note attached that they would have done a full autopsy. But because he was sent down there with, a, uh, with no note attached, as a suicide victim, only a limited autopsy was done. I'm the one who cleaned everything up. Yeah, so... I carried the, fur- was, I carried the furniture out and done all the mopping. And, and see, they shouldn't have let y'all burn that couch. That couch, that love seat, that love seat was evidence. They shouldn't have let y'all touch that couch. Well, they didn't even, you know, every homicide that I've seen happen or, you know, where somebody's lost a life, they send a crew out to clean things up. Right. A forensic like specialist. Like a hazmat crew. <laughs> Sorry, as a buddy of mine. That's okay. The, uh, yeah. And they, they didn't do that. They just left. And yeah, well, that's just we like they shouldn't have let people in there at all. They should have took every one of y'all down to that police station and questioned y'all separately. They should have had well, forensic specialists come in there. Well, they did. It was days later. <laughs> Thank you.
Despite the fact that three witnesses told authorities that Mike shot DJ, the medical examiner ruled DJ's death a suicide. DJ's family tried reaching the medical examiner, but Amanda says she refused to speak with them. DJ's family continued pressing investigators for answers and grew more frustrated with how long it was taking to reach a conclusion. DJ's mother Kathy and sister Amanda met with investigators about six weeks after DJ's death, but still no answers. Almost three months after his death, DJ's family receives his death certificate and the suicide ruling is reconfirmed. Subsequent to receiving the death certificate, Amanda traded emails with the deputy coroner who tells Amanda that the medical examiner was never told a homicide investigation into DJ's death was being conducted by Walker County sheriffs. The medical examiner claims she was only told that it was a suicide. Amanda also learned later that Coroner Wilson, who was on scene that day, sent a report to the medical examiner and the GBI saying the gun was pulled out of DJ's hand that day. This statement completely contradicts what the first responding officer said in his report, which was that when he arrived, he saw the gun laying on a shelf away from DJ's body. We also have the 911 calls where the operator instructed Mike to get the gun to a safe location and he complied. It has been well documented that the gun was not in DJ's hands when police or the coroner arrived. This misinformation from the coroner likely further cemented in the mind of the medical examiner that she was conducting an autopsy on a man who committed suicide. Three witnesses saying that Mike shot DJ is likely not enough for people to fully dismiss that DJ's death was a suicide. However, the location of the injury to DJ's face, the type of weapon used, and DJ's hand orientation might lead someone to believe this could have been a homicide. You see, DJ was right-handed. The shotgun wound was on his left cheek, with the trajectory in a downward angle. Bullet fragments were found in DJ's lower right ear, and we know that the gun fired was a sawed-off shotgun. I read that a sawed-off shotgun can be as long as 26 inches. While I don't know the exact length of the gun used in DJ's death, I think it's reasonable to assume that this would not be considered a small gun, relatively speaking. If DJ did shoot himself, is it reasonable to assume it would be fairly awkward to use a sawed-off shotgun to shoot yourself in the face given that this is not a small handgun? Some might even question the fact that DJ supposedly shot himself out in the open with several other people nearby, given that you often hear of people committing suicide in a private setting. These are the questions DJ's family are asking. DJ's family points out the following in regards to DJ's death. Three witnesses say that Mike shot DJ. Mike is the only witness who says that DJ shot himself. DJ's family wonders why one witness is being believed over three others. It was well known that Mike and DJ did not get along, and in fact, the two of them had physical altercations just days before DJ's death. DJ's family believes this goes toward motive for Mike to kill DJ. The family says Mike was obsessed with Brandy, and made previous statements about Brandy getting a check if DJ died. DJ's family believes Mike wanted DJ out of the picture, and this also provides a motive for Mike to kill DJ. Not long before his death, DJ posted on Facebook about living in a dangerous situation and needing to find a new place to live. In addition, DJ sent text messages to his mother saying he was going to end up dead. DJ was dead just minutes after sending these text messages. 
DJ was shot on the left side of his face with a sawed-off shotgun. DJ was right-handed, and his family believes it would be very difficult for him to fire a sawed-off shotgun with his left hand and shoot himself on the left side of his face using that type of gun. In April of 2017, six months after DJ's death, two detectives and the district attorney told DJ's family there is just not enough evidence to pursue charges against anyone and take DJ's case in front of a grand jury. In their words, quote, the defense would eat the witnesses alive, as they were all on drugs and therefore not credible. Amanda wonders why detectives and the district attorney think the grand jury might believe one drug user over three others. DJ's family has been working with private investigator Eric Eccles on DJ's case for quite some time now. Eric was able to get a meeting with the medical examiner, who, according to Amanda, previously refused to speak with DJ's family. Eric presented all of the facts to the medical examiner, and she left that meeting telling Eric she would review everything he presented and order toxicology reports. During this meeting, Eric learned that detectives and the medical examiner never spoke with each other during the investigation. Eric played audio for the medical examiner that had a detective in DJ's case saying he changed the investigation from a suicide to a homicide. Would DJ's cause of death ruling be different if the two agencies had communicated with one another during the investigation? We'll never know. And remember, Coroner Wilson, who was on scene the day of the incident, sent a report to the medical examiner stating that the gun was pulled from DJ's hands that day. And we know, based on the 911 calls and the first responders' report, that that is untrue. The medical examiner went into DJ's autopsy not knowing it was being investigated as a potential homicide and also having received misinformation from the coroner. I cannot say with certainty that these facts influenced the medical examiner's findings in DJ's autopsy. I would imagine the outcome of any autopsy should be based on scientific findings and not information provided by other parties. But DJ's family has been left wondering if the medical examiner's determination of cause of death might be different had she been properly informed of the facts surrounding DJ's death and notified by police that they were investigating this as a potential homicide. The fact that detectives and the medical examiner never spoke with one another during the investigation is just one of the numerous aspects of DJ's case that have left DJ's family extremely frustrated. Private investigator Eric Eccles remained in touch with the medical examiner after she got the toxicology reports back. Not surprisingly, the reports indicated that DJ had meth and marijuana in his system at the time of his death. What is surprising are the medical examiner's comments to Eric about the toxicology reports. The medical examiner told Eric that DJ's death was a suicide because meth is a stimulant and therefore, DJ could have defended himself. Before we discuss this peculiar statement, it should also be mentioned that marijuana is a depressant and it was also found in DJ's system. According to Eric, the medical examiner made no mention of the marijuana and the fact that it's a depressant. Back to the comment about meth being a stimulant. The medical examiner seemed to be indicating to Eric that due to meth being a stimulant, DJ was not murdered because he could have defended himself. Regardless of the drugs found in DJ's system, it seems like a stretch to take the stance that someone wasn't murdered because they had the ability to defend themselves. Many people have been murdered while defending themselves. 
the medical examiner concluded the meeting with Eric and told him she would not be changing the cause of death on DJ's death certificate. As of today's date, DJ's death has been ruled a suicide and the investigation has been closed. DJ's family are fighting to get the manner of death on his death certificate changed because that's the key to getting the homicide investigation reopened and active again. New evidence in the case might also help to get the investigation reopened, but that hasn't happened at this point. Amanda has vowed never to give up on seeking justice for her brother, and you'll hear more from Amanda soon. I'll be releasing a follow-up to this episode featuring a conversation Lisa and I had with Amanda. You'll get even more details and insight into the case after listening to the call with Amanda. While I can't say with certainty what happened at Olman's house the afternoon of October 3rd, 2016, I can say that I find many of the details in this case perplexing, and I do think there's more to uncover here. I can understand why DJ's family isn't satisfied with the outcome so far, and my hope is that this episode brings more attention to DJ's case. Amanda is very active on social media. You can find her on Twitter at JusticeForDJ88 and on Facebook by searching for Justice for DJ. There, you'll find a link to a petition to help get this case in front of a grand jury. That's all for today's episode. Be sure to head over to the Murderish Facebook group or Twitter to discuss this case. I'm always curious to know your thoughts. Don't forget to follow Murderish on Instagram at Murderish Podcast and on Twitter at Murderish Pod. If you're enjoying this podcast, do me the biggest favor and hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Tell a friend about Murderish and leave a positive rating and review in iTunes. If you'd like to take your support for the podcast a step further, head over to patreon.com slash murderish, where you'll see some cool perks that are available in exchange for your monthly support. If you become a patron, you'll have immediate access to bonus content which includes some fun conversations I've had with other true crime podcast hosts. Other Patreon perks include stickers, magnets, a shout out on the podcast, discount codes at the merch stores, t-shirts, and other cool stuff. If you'd like to sport a murderish t-shirt or sip coffee from a murderish mug, head over to the about section of the murderish Facebook group, where you'll find links to both merch stores. Links to the merch stores can also be found in episode show notes. Email any comments or questions you have to murderishjamie at gmail.com. That's murderishjami at gmail.com. This show is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Intro and outro music was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. Listener disclaimer at the beginning of the show provided by the host of Swindled Podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Lisa, host of Eye for an Eye podcast. She partnered with me on this episode and really helped to pull everything together. Be sure to check out Eye for an Eye podcast and hit the subscribe button while you're there. I also want to thank Amanda for her help during this process. Amanda shared a lot of DJ's case information with me, which was very helpful in telling his story. I appreciate so much that Amanda trusted me to tell DJ's story. It's not something I take lightly. I hope you'll stick around for a couple more minutes to hear promos from my friends from Criminology and California Dreaming Podcasts. These are two of my favorite shows. I've found so many great podcasts after hearing their promos on other shows. I hope you'll find something new to listen to. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. 
Be sure to join me on the next episode where you'll hear a conversation Lisa and I had with DJ's sister, Amanda. You won't want to miss it. I'm looking forward to seeing you all again very soon. And remember, listening to this show doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Hi, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morford. And we'd like to invite you to check out our true crime podcast, Criminology. In each season of Criminology, we take a deep dive to tackle some of the biggest cases in the history of true crime using classified police files and interviews with investigators, experts, victims, and survivors, all in an effort to accurately and completely examine the cases we cover. And season four of Criminology is out right now. We're taking on cases solved in 2018 using DNA with the help of resources like Parabon, GEDmatch, and Forensic Genealogy. And we've got some great interviews this season with people like Paul Holes, who helped bring down the Golden State Killer, Curtis Rogers, founder of GEDmatch, Steve Armantrout, the CEO of Parabon, and Colleen Fitzpatrick, a forensic genealogist who's had a hand in solving some of these cases. Past seasons of Criminology are available to binge, including in-depth coverage of the Zodiac Killer, the Golden State Killer, and Ted Bundy. New episodes drop Saturdays at 10 o'clock p.m., and you can find and subscribe to Criminology on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. On August 22, 1996, 22-year-old Debbie Dorian was discovered bound, gagged, raped, and murdered in her apartment. Her father was the one to have made the horrific discovery, and to this day, her killer has never been apprehended, and her case has gone cold. However, he did leave behind his genetic marker, his DNA. Though he would lay dormant for nearly three years, he did strike again, raping at least seven more women in the Visalia, California area, linked to all of those crimes through his DNA. But Debbie would be the only known victim to have died at his hands. With DNA technology having advanced by leaps and bounds over the last 22 years, as well as some recent, very high-profile cases in California that had long been cold being solved, It is our hope to shine a light on Debbie's case, to bring this killer and rapist to justice, and a measure of closure for Debbie's family and friends who have waited much too long for answers. With the blessings of Debbie's mother, Sarah, and the help and guidance of her best friend, Katina, California Dreaming and Orbital Jigsaw are bringing you their story in Episode 64, The Unsolved Murder of Debbie Dorian.